Our scripture text for today is John chapter 16. John chapter 16, starting in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It was a Thursday evening, about 6 p.m., and the sun had just dipped below the horizon. In the Jewish culture, this meant that the next day had actually begun, so Thursday had gone into Friday. And in that particular year, this meant that the feast of the Passover was just about to commence. It was the 15th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, and Jesus was now less than 24 hours away from his arrest, from his trial, from his conviction, from his crucifixion, and from his burial. Several days earlier, Jesus had been in the city of Bethany, which was two miles to the east of Jerusalem. There he had been anointed by a woman named Mary with a very expensive ointment. She just put a small bottle upon his body, but that small bottle cost $20,000. Jesus had raised her brother from the dead, and he, she was grateful to him for that fact. But as grateful as she was, Jesus said that his act, that that her act of kindness, her act of anointing, was actually intended by God to prepare him for burial. The people didn't understand what Jesus was saying, but in a short time, Jesus uh, got their attention and led them away from the city of Bethany toward Jerusalem. He went up the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives with the disciples following in his train and praising his name, and together they descended down the western side. And when I say praising his name, they were literally out loud, together as a people, worshiping Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. There were a number of people in Jerusalem that had heard that Jesus raised a man from the dead. And so when they saw him coming down the western slopes of the mountain, they actually went out from the city to meet him. Hundreds more people went out to meet him. And they joined in the procession, and they joined in singing praise. They shouted out to him in the words of Psalm 118 and said, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They thought that he was their long-awaited Messiah. They thought that he had finally come to deliver the people of God from their enemies round about. They thought that he had come to be their ruler for the glory of the Father and for the joy of the nation forever and ever. As for Jesus, though, 
He did gladly receive their praise, and then he taught them several things, but knowing that he and his disciples were in imminent danger, he actually led his closest disciples back out of Jerusalem to a nearby town where they stayed for several days. The following Thursday, all that happened on a Sunday, the following Thursday, Jesus sent two of his disciples, Peter and John, back into Jerusalem, and he told them that there they would find a man and that that man would lead them to a room in his house, to an upper room. And there in that place, John and Peter were to make preparations for Jesus and all 12 of his disciples to enjoy the Passover meal. And so in obedience to their Lord, Peter and John did just that. They found that place, they prepared that place, and when the sun had set on that day, when Thursday went into Friday, when the Passover feast was just about to commence, Jesus re-entered the city, he made his way to that upper room, and he reclined at the table with his 12 disciples to enjoy the feast. There he taught them many things. And by God's grace, we have had the privilege for 16 Sundays of meditating on the things that Jesus said there that day, that night. And this morning, we have the immense honor of meditating upon his final words in the upper room. John chapter 16, 25 through 33 are the final things that are recorded at least that Jesus said to the disciples before he prayed the great prayer of chapter 17 and then went off to be betrayed and went off to be crucified. And beloved, it is a great, great privilege for us to think about these things. So let me take just a moment now and pray that the Lord would make us attentive. Let me pray that God would help us to have the power to listen to his words. Please bow with me now in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for who you are. We are so grateful for what you have done. We are so grateful for the things that you said there in the upper room that night in the city of Jerusalem. And I pray that you would now come and by the Holy Spirit take us back to that place. I pray that you would help us have ears to hear the things that you had to say. I pray that you would help us have hearts to receive the things that you had to say. I pray that you would give us a will to do your will according to the things that you had to say. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and speak to us as plainly and as powerfully as you did to your disciples in that day. I love you for speaking then. I thank you for speaking now. And I praise you for what you will do through our time together. In the mighty and merciful and matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Jesus began in verse 25, and he said to them, to his disciples, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. Now in the Greek language, there's just one word there for figures of speech, and that word can mean a parable or a metaphor or an illustration or something like that. But here I think Jesus is just talking about being obscure. I think what Jesus is saying is not so much that I've spoken to you in riddles, because if you look through chapters 13 through, through 16, there's not really any riddles there. He's not saying that he spoke literally parabolically. He's just saying I'm speaking in ways that are obscure to you and that, are not, that you're not understanding. And I think he's trying to tell them I've done this on purpose. I have deliberately spoken in ways that you cannot understand for the moment. It was not that he was simply trying to confuse them for the sake of confusing them, but I do think it was that he was trying to arouse their attention. He was trying to get them to think He's trying to cause that emotion to, to, to rise up in them. If you've ever heard somebody say something and you don't really track with what they're saying and you're just like, huh, what's that person saying? But it gets your attention, it gets you thinking, it gets you invested, it gets you wondering. And I think Jesus was trying to do that. He was trying to wake them, he was trying to arouse them and he was trying to prepare them for the things that were about to happen and for things that he would soon 
reveal. Because if you look at what Jesus then said in verse 25, he continued, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. I will not speak obscurely, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. The, the Lord would soon speak to them in terms that were clear and understandable and that they could celebrate. And if you'll notice, the specific thing he was gonna be clear about was the Father. Surely he spoke to them about many things, but here he has in his laser focus God the Father. And what he's saying is, I have not been completely clear with you about these things, but soon I'm gonna talk to you about the Father. And I just wanna ask and answer the question for a few moments. Why is he putting our attention on God the Father? Well, if you look back up in verse 17, you'll see there that the disciples had been puzzling about what Jesus meant when he said that he was gonna go to the Father. They didn't really understand what he had in mind. They didn't understand where he thought that he was going. As Jewish men, they were raised to believe powerfully. In fact, they were raised to be willing to die for the truth of Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is what? The Lord is one, right? They were raised to believe that there is not many gods, but there is one God. They were raised to believe that God is not just any God we make him out to be, but that God is who he says he is. God is a specific, personal God. We don't make God up. God created us. They believed powerfully and passionately that the Lord their God, the Lord was one. And they believed this from before they could actually even remember. While they knew that Jesus was a great man of God, and while they believed that he was the long-awaited Messiah and the fulfillment of so many biblical prophecies, Beloved, these men simply had no categories for understanding the relationships between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They had no way of understanding that when Jesus repeatedly used the words, I am, and he was not just making general statements about himself, but he was actually invoking the divine name of God and applying it to himself. He was not just saying I am in a general way, he's saying I am the I am. They had no category for quite comprehending that. And when Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of truth or the Spirit of God, they had no way of understanding that that was not just another way of saying God. They had no way of understanding that the Spirit of God is a distinct person, even though he's absolutely one with the Godhead. They just didn't have categories to follow him, beloved, and they were not quite yet ready. To my knowledge, I searched for this, I couldn't find it, and over the years of my study and just seeking the Lord, I, I don't remember hearing about any Trinitarian Jews. The Hebrew Bible is filled with references to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. But like Jesus' speech in the upper room, they're obscure. There's a, there's a veil over the revelation that's there in the Old Testament. And only in Jesus Christ is that veil removed. Only in the light of Jesus Christ can we look back at Genesis 1 and certain portions of the prophets and many places in the Psalms and see clearly references to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Before these men, beloved, at that time, even though Jesus wanted them to understand some things, they just weren't ready to understand all things. And so he said enough to them to arouse their attention. He wasn't just trying to confuse them. He was saying enough to get their attention and yet he was not saying too much. He was not giving them things that they were not quite ready for. Now, as for when this hour happened, when Jesus actually transitioned from obscure speech to, to clear speech, I have two thoughts about that. J just something that, uh, a question that 
gripped my heart a few days ago as I was meditating. When exactly did he begin to speak plainly? Because after this, he goes right to the cross. So when did he transition from obscure speech to plain speech? Well, I have two answers, and I think the the combination of those answers is is the, the answer. First of all, I think that Jesus has in mind here the 40 days that he spent with the disciples between the resurrection and his ascension. After he was raised from the dead, the Bible tells us that Jesus spent time with his disciples and he spoke to them about many things. Forty days later, he was ascended into the presence of the Father in the sight of the disciples. But in those five and a half weeks, Jesus taught them and taught them and taught them. And we don't know everything that he taught them. Not a lot of what he did and said in those days is recorded. But I can promise you that in that time, he spoke to them about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Think about this with me. For him to teach them about these things was for him to greatly disrupt the categories they had always had in their mind about God. But when a person raises himself from the dead, he tends to get your attention. Amen? It was enough that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Who can even take that in? But nobody stood outside the grave of Jesus and said, Jesus, come forth. Jesus Christ raised on his own by the power of the Father. When somebody rises from the dead, he has authority, and he gets people's attention, and they listen to him. And so they were ready. And I don't know all that Jesus taught, and I'm not going to say more than I can possibly know, but it's hard for me to believe, impossible for me to believe, that Jesus did not speak to them at some length about the Father, about the Son, about the Holy Spirit. It's impossible for me to believe that Jesus did not open up to them the scriptures from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament and show them himself throughout the whole corpus of the writings that were available at that time. Jesus taught them well. And this was just the beginning. I'm sure they didn't understand everything at that point, but I think it was a very important beginning. Second answer then is that at the day of Pentecost, in fulfillment of the promise of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came down upon his people and remained upon his people. And in fulfillment of Jesus' promise, he began to teach his people. Let me remind you of two of Jesus' promises. If you'll just flip back to John 14, 26. In John 14, 26, Jesus promised them, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He's going to teach you when he comes, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now if you'll flip back to chapter 16, verse 13. 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will do what? He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. When the Holy Spirit descended and remained upon those first disciples, beloved, I have no doubt but that he taught them about the Father, about the Son, and about the Holy Spirit. I have no doubt, but that he opened their eyes to the glory of who God is. And we know that that doesn't mean they understood every single thing they needed to understand forever. We We see even in the book of Acts that even the apostles are still progressing in their understanding of the things of God. But what I am saying is that after Jesus' resurrection, First through his own mouth and then through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus began to be plain about the things of God. And so profound is the unity between Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that when the Holy Spirit speaks, it's as if Jesus himself is speaking. Now whatever the details of the timing here, 
I want us to notice the primary consequence of the things that Jesus would teach them about the Father. Please notice that the thing that happens after Jesus teaches is actually prayer. It's not just understanding. Nobody went and wrote a theological paper. They went and talked with their Father. Look at verse 26 and 27. Jesus said, in that day, when I transition from obscure speech to plain speech about the Father, this is what's going to happen. You will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that, you, that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. When Jesus revealed to them more about the glory and about the nature and about the nearness of the Father, the disciples would pray to the Father and ask many, many things in his name. It's not that they would look at prayer as a means of just getting things out of God. It's rather that they would come into a fullness of understanding about what, about what Jesus had accomplished for them so that they would spend their lives communing with God, so that they would spend their lives in prayer to God, so that they would spend their lives in fellowship with God. They would understand that what Jesus had done granted them relational access to the Father because in becoming one with Jesus, they became one with the Father. And having understood these things, beloved, they would not just rejoice in knowledge, but they would actually pray. And I just wanna encourage us today. One of the ways you can know that you're coming into an understanding of the Trinity, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one of the ways you can know that you're actually growing in the knowledge of God is that you will pray. The issue of knowing more about God is not just knowing more about God. It's about knowing God. The more the, the, the impulse, the desire, the practice of prayer takes hold in your life, the more that you can know that you are coming into an actual understanding of what Jesus Christ has done for you. He did come to reveal things to our minds. Of course, we have to understand but he came to escort us into a living, loving relationship. This is actually the end goal of his speech. This is actually the end goal of his revelation to us about the Father. And to reveal to them and to us the extent of what he did, please notice that Jesus said that when his disciples prayed, he would not relay their request to the Father. It's not as though they would come to Jesus, then Jesus would take their requests and bring those things to the Father. This is not the picture. Jesus is saying, that through faith in me, you will be united with me. And being, in being united with me, you will be united with the Father. When you speak, the Father will hear. I will not need to take your request and walk it over to the Father. Because everything you say to, to him in my name, he will hear it directly. Because he loves you. He loves you. Beloved, I pray that we will never believe the lie. That we have to go through some institution or some specific organization to get to God, or that we have to come through some mere human being to get to God. The Bible is clear. There is one mediator between God and man, and that one is Jesus Christ, who is God and is man. It's only through him that we need to come to the Father. And when we come to the Father through him, we get to the Father. Jesus provides us eternal access to the God who has created us and who sustains us and who will sustain us forever and ever. Now some of you may be thinking about a text like Hebrews 7.25 and wondering how that matches. Let me just read for you Hebrews 7.25. It says there, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost 
those who draw near to God through him because Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, uh, Hebrews 7.25 and several other passages tell us that Jesus is constantly praying to the Father on our behalf. And so how are we to understand the relationship between that and what's being said here? And I would just say that in texts like Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is instigating prayer for us. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, without ceasing, Jesus is praying for us by name and by circumstance. That is the reality for everybody who believes in him. But here in John 16, 26, he's talking about those prayers that are instigated inside of our hearts. As the Holy Spirit works in us and causes us to cry out to God, Abba, Father, and then express to him all the things that are in our hearts. Those prayers that come from our hearts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has no need to relay to the Father because through Jesus we get to the Father. So it's not that his prayers and our prayers are contradicting each other, they're complementary. He's actually trying to bring us into the rich relational communicational life that he already has with the Father on our behalf. Beloved, a plain teaching of Jesus about the Father is designed to grant us understanding about the Father, that's true, but more so, it is designed to lead us into eternal communion with the Father. And I wanna press on you again, especially those of you who love theology, you love thinking and all that, that's great. But if you're not praying, if you're not communing with God, do not think that you are growing in your, your understanding of God. The point of revelation of the Father is that we would pray to the Father in Jesus' name. This is the intended consequence of his plain speech. Now before we move on from here, I wanna take a few minutes and meditate with you, delight with you in verse 27. Please look at the language there. Jesus said, for the Father himself loves you, and because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I think it's impossible to capture in human language the beauty, the wonder, really the impossibility of these words. Given the infinite perfection of God, the infinite holiness of God, given the infinite or at least the intractable rebellion of human beings, our constant pushing against God, our constant questioning of God, our constant rebellion against God, our constant sinning against God in thought, in affection, in action, in, in, in words. It's just amazing that he would want anything to do with us. It's amazing that he would not just destroy the planet and start again with some other plan. It's amazing that he would make a sacrifice so that we could be forgiven at all. It would be amazing enough if God just forgave us and then said, now what I want you to do is go over there and sit in a room and that's gonna be your eternity. I will let you live, I will let you have a measure of peace, but that's it. That, that would be enough. That would still be a, a measure of grace from a God who has been greatly offended by sinners and yet this is not the heart of the Father. He takes sinners like us and he forgives us and he welcomes us into his family. He calls us his family. He welcomes us to his table. He brings us into his throne room in Colossians and Ephesians both. It says that we are made to be seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. Not even angels sit there with him, beloved. This is the measure of the love of God. The Father himself has loved you. And I'm just struck by the personal nature of that language. 
Jesus didn't say, I'm not going to have to talk to the Father on your behalf. I won't have to re- relay your request because the Father himself loves everybody who believes in me. He didn't say it in a general way. He said to 11 specific people, the Father loves you. Personal speech. And any of us here today that have faith in Jesus Christ, any of us who believe in him, you need to hear this from him. You need to receive this and take this personally. The Father himself loves you. You are personally and eternally and infinitely loved by the Father. All the affection he has for his Son is now upon you. This is your destiny in Christ. This is the greatness, the vastness, the incomprehensibility of the measure of the mercy of God in our lives. Now, when Jesus says that the Father loved the disciples, uh, if you look there in verse 27, he said, it's because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. If you're not careful there, you could read that like this. You could read that to say, well, you first loved me and so then the Father decided to love you. You could take that to, to mean that our love for Jesus is the basis of the Father's love for us. But it's actually the other way around. What Jesus is really saying is that our love for Jesus is an evidence that the Father already loved us. You may remember from chapter one that that John was very clear that nobody comes into the family of God except by the will of the Father. It's not human will that causes us to be born again. It is not human will that causes us to know Jesus and have the, the affection of the Father upon us. It is the action of the Father upon us that causes us to know him. And then Jesus said again in chapter 6 and chapter 10 that it's the Father who draws us to himself. We don't draw ourselves to the Father. The Father draws us to himself. He makes a choice on us. We don't make a choice for him. He brings us to himself, and then he keeps us for himself. Jesus has said this repeatedly through the Gospel of John. And then if you look at chapter 15, verse 16, here's what Jesus said, talking to these very 11 men. He said, let's get something straight here. You did not choose me. You did not instigate this relationship. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So we should hear Jesus saying something like this. For the Father himself loved you and the proof of the Father's love upon you is your belief in me. The fact that you believe in Jesus The fact that you love Jesus, the fact that you want to listen to him and follow him, this is proof that the Father's love is upon you, and it is proof positive. The Father himself loves you. This is your destiny. All of you who believe in Christ, this is your eternity, and I pray that you will rejoice with me in this fact. I pray that the Father will open your eyes to reveal to you how impossible this is, how unbelievable this is. It's like Paul said in Ephesians 2.7. He said that at the end of all things, when we all see Jesus face to face, when he sets all things right, we are going to praise him forever for the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. When you see all that God has done for you in Christ, oh, you will bow down to worship. Nobody will have to force you to worship. It will be the instinct of your heart to just bow down and say, Father, thank you. Thank you so much. Much And I pray that God will do that kind of revealing work among us today. In verse 28, Jesus then went on to repeat himself. 
and say again, I came from the Father and I have come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So he was with God in the beginning because he is God from before the beginning. And in obedience to God the Father, he emptied himself and took on flesh and came into this world at the command of the Father. He was now about to suffer and die and to be raised again from the dead and then soon he would ascend to go back to the Father. He had come from the Father and now he's gonna go back to the Father. He had told the disciples repeatedly though that this did not mean he would leave them as orphans. He would not leave them alone. He would send to them the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, to be their companion, to be their indwelling power, to be their helper, to be their teacher. Now, when Jesus said those words, it's really hard to say how the disciples heard him. It's hard to understand how the disciples uh, interpreted the things that he had said. If you'll just look at me at verses, verses uh, 29 and 30. Having heard Jesus say that, now the disciples said, ah, oh, now you are speaking plainly and not using obscure language. Now we know all things and that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. I have meditated on these verses for hours and hours and hours this week. I can't figure out what they thought was so plain at this point. In fact, I'm reading, I'm doing a lot of research for this particular sermon series. I'm reading about 15 commentaries every, every single week. I couldn't find a single commentator who knew what the disciples thought was so clear. But somehow or other, something Jesus said made them go, oh, we get it, we get it. And this was a very sincere emotion, very sincere. In fact, when they said, you know everything and nobody needs to question you, that was a Jewish way of saying, you're very close to God, in fact, you may be God. It was a way of ascribing divinity to a person. So whatever was happening in their hearts, they felt like this was a moment of, of revelation. But the sincerity of their hearts didn't mean that they were right about what they were saying. Jesus was not so persuaded that they actually believed everything that they thought that they believed. And so he continued and said this. And I think he said this in love. I don't think this question was an accusation. I don't think we should hear it as a dart. I think we should just hear it as a, a check. He said to them, now, really, do you really now believe? Do you now believe? Behold, let me tell you about what's about to happen. The hour is coming and indeed it has come. It's gonna be here faster than you understand when you will be scattered, each of you to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. Despite their sincere declaration, Jesus knew that very soon they would fulfill the ancient prophecy of Zechariah 13:7. Let me read that prophecy for you. The prophet said, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the Lord Jesus Christ. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Strike Jesus and the disciples will flee. I will turn my hand against my little ones. Earlier, Jesus had taught the disciples and said this. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. Scatters, same exact word. You're gonna be scattered. In that case, the reason the sheep scattered is because the shepherd over them did not own them, did not love them, did not really care about them. And when trouble came, the shepherd's like, listen, I'm gonna get myself out of trouble. I'm out of here. And when the shepherd left, the sheep were scattered. But now in this situation, the situation's a little bit different. Here, the shepherd would be struck 
And instead of remaining loyal to their shepherd, the sheep themselves would choose to scatter. And the reason they're going to choose to scatter is not because they didn't love Jesus. It's not because they didn't believe in him. It's because their belief and their love was not yet perfected, beloved. They were there, but they were not all the way there. They were not unbelievers, but they hadn't come as far as they needed to come. Their love and their belief had yet to be perfected. And yet, even as they scattered from him, Jesus was going to lay down his life for them. He was going to lavish his love upon people who forsook him. Jesus had said earlier, the faithless shepherd flees because he is a hired hand and he does not care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And here's what I do. No matter what my sheep do, here's what I do. I lay down my life for the sheep. Let them scatter, I will show them my love. Let them flee, but I will lay down my life for them. The Father would cause Jesus to be able to endure the forsaking, to be able to endure the cross. The Father would cause Jesus for the joy that was set before him to endure all the suffering that was about to land upon him. The Father would use that holy, sacred anointing oil and the fragrance of it to remind Jesus that he was not alone because the Father was with him. Even though all scattered, the Father would still be with him. And I can just imagine Jesus hanging on that cross and that $20,000 of anointing oil, which would have hung on a person for probably a couple of weeks. I just imagine a breeze coming up and Jesus smelling a smell in the midst of his great suffering and remembering that the Father was indeed with him. Beloved, when the Father is with you, you cannot be alone. Though all forsake you, you cannot be alone. And this is what Jesus was saying. You will scatter from me. I will lay down my life for you. But listen to me, I'm not going to be alone because the Father is with me and he will not forsake me. Now before we move on to consider verse 33, I want to just pause here to highlight for you the strong emphasis that Jesus puts on the Father. Earlier this week as I was doing my study on the text, it just jumped out to me, jumped off the page how much Jesus has said about the Father here. He has actually made five very specific statements about the Father because he's trying to reveal some things to us so that we will come in to a communal, intercessional relationship with the Father. So let me just summarize them all for you like this. Jesus said that he came from the Father. He said he would be cared for by the Father in his hour of suffering. He said that he would soon return to the Father. And then he said he would speak plainly about the Father so that all who believe in him can enjoy unending communion with the Father. And because the presence of the Holy Spirit is implied here at several points, beloved, these verses are profoundly Trinitarian. The whole issue of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is just oozing off of these verses. It's like an aroma rising up from verses 30, uh, 25 to 32 in particular. And that aroma is going to become the foundation for the prayer that Jesus is going to pray in, in chapter 17. That aroma is the heart of what he wants to reveal to us even today. He wants to make things plain to us about the Father, about the Son, about the Holy Spirit, so that we will come into communion with him. And so I pray that you will take time to contemplate these things. I pray that you will take time to take the scripture later today and think about all that Jesus has said about the Father and all that that implies for all of our lives. Now with regard to verse 33, this is a very unique verse. First of all, these are the last recorded words that Jesus spoke in the upper room and last words are always among the most important of words. 
but also verse 33 serves as a banner, not just over what Jesus has just said, but it serves as a banner over the entire upper room discourse. In fact, there's one scholar who feels that verse 33 is actually a banner over everything Jesus ever taught to his disciples for the last three or four years. Personally, I I don't take that view, but I do think in verse 33, Jesus is talking about everything he said in the upper room, and so let's read that verse together. I have said these things to you. In other words, everything I have said in this upper room, I have said these things to you for this purpose, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world." Besides the details of exactly what Jesus means by these things, I really want us to take note of the purpose for which he spoke. This is so important that we understand this. Why did Jesus speak the things that he spoke? He spoke the things that he spoke so that his disciples would have peace in him. And this is not just a sentimental wish on the part of Jesus. He's not saying, listen, I've taught you all these things and boy, I'm sure hoping you have my peace. I'm sure praying that that'll come about. That is not what he's saying. He is saying that, I am, I am, I'm God in the flesh, and here's my intention. Through my speech, you will have my peace. And if he declares something like that, beloved, it's gonna happen. Jesus is going to grant his peace to everybody who receives and delights in his words. This is a promise from him. Now the Greek word peace, just like our English word, basically refers to an absence of conflict externally or to an absence of internal anxiety. But I really think the Hebrew word for peace is really what is behind this in John's mind because he was a Jewish man. He was writing in Greek, but he was a Jew. And so even though he's writing in in Greek, he thinks like a Jew. And the, the Hebrew word shalom for peace means more than just the feeling of peace. It means a wholeness. It means a, a completeness. It means an orderliness. It means things with God, things with the world, things with everything are put together in the way that they ought to be put together. And then because things are put together in the right way, we have the feeling of peace. We have freedom from anxiety because the world is as it ought to be. So let me put it this way. Biblically speaking, peace is the fruit of the objective work of God for his people in the world. So God orders the world rightly and then we get the feeling of peace. And I think that if we think through this a little bit, we'll, we'll be able to, to connect with this principle here. Just think about your finances for a second. Let's imagine that your financial life is just out of order. You really don't know where you're at. You don't understand how much you're making exactly. You kind of know, but you're not really paying attention. You're not balancing your checkbook, so you might be able to uh, check your, check, your, your balance in your bank account, but you actually don't really know where your money's at. You know you have bills to pay, and you pay them when you can, but you're not really paying attention. You're not thinking about long-term and mid-term things. Your, your finance is just kind of out of order, and there's chaos there. What kind of feelings does that make you feel? Well, for me, when my finances are out of order, I feel anxiety. And sometimes it's high anxiety, but often it's just this low-level anxiety that just won't go away. Just something in my life is not in order, and I don't feel at peace. I don't feel right. But if by God's grace you put your hand to the plow and you get your finances in order, you see your income rightly, you see your outcome, your outgo rightly, you, you, have, you have a plan, you have a vision, you might not have everything you want, You might not even feel like you have everything you need, but at least you can see what's there. There's a sense of peace that comes. There's a sense of of rest that comes. There's a freedom from anxiety. Sure, you have plenty of things to pray about, but order breeds peace. Chaos breeds anxiety. And see, when Jesus comes and sets the world in order, it breeds peace. 
It breeds peace. And this is why Jesus is saying that his disciples will have peace in him. He's not saying that we're going to have peace in some unspecific way. It's not like you're just going to be walking down the road and get hit by a lightning bolt of peace. He's saying, I am your peace because I myself have put all things in order. I'm unifying everything in me, things with God, things with heaven, things with earth, things with humanity, things with sin and forgiveness and grace. I'm putting it all in order, and therefore inside me, you are going to have peace. Beloved, the peace that comes from God is a peace that is rooted in the person of Jesus and in the work of Jesus. And if you want his peace, peace, attach yourself to him. He himself is our peace, as the Apostle Paul said. Now, this is his aim. He said, listen, the aim of my words is you're gonna get my peace. But then he was honest with us. And let us know that his peace does not mean that life in this world is going to be easy. In fact, look at what he promised in verse 33. This is a promise. In the world, you will have what? You will have tribulation. That word tribulation literally means a pressing together. Think of like a vice, pushing things together. It's a pressing together, it's pressure. It's outward pressure against something that usually causes suffering in the world. And Jesus said, listen, this is, this is what life is gonna be like in the world. You're gonna have tribulation. You're gonna have things from the outside that are pressing upon you. And in this specific context, I think he has in mind the fact that when the disciples go out from this place into the world and begin speaking about Jesus, that the world is not gonna necessarily love them, but the world is gonna hate them and persecute them. The world is gonna come against them just as the world was right then coming against Jesus. They were gonna be pressed. They're gonna be uh, caused to be in turmoil. They were gonna experience tribulation. And by extension, I think Jesus is speaking to his people throughout all time. And I'm telling you, in our culture, the day is coming very soon when churches are gonna be hard pressed by this culture. When I drove up to this School district building this morning, I wondered to myself, how long are they gonna allow a church to meet in a school building? How long until this whole country says, all churches, out? It's not gonna be that long, I don't think. There are already major cities in our country that for theological, moral reasons have kicked all churches out of all their schools. Beloved, the day is coming when the church is going to be pressed. We're gonna have tribulation in this world. And I praise God that Jesus is just flat honest with us. I love him for his honesty. There are churches in this country right now, even this very morning, preaching, hey, come to Jesus, everything's gonna be great. Your best life now. Come to Christ, you'll get better cars, bigger houses, bigger bank accounts, a more secure future. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, come to me, believe in me, and you'll have my peace. And you'll have it in abundance. And guess what? You'll also have tribulation because you're gonna walk as I walked in this world and you're gonna suffer as I suffered in this world. The world hated me, the world is gonna hate you and you're gonna become like me through experiencing what I experienced. I'm actually giving you the privilege of entering in to my suffering. I'm giving you that as a a privilege. In this world, you're gonna have tribulation. And beloved, we just need to set our expectations in the right way. We need to do that. But be that as it may, Jesus then, after that, issued a very powerful command on the basis of his irreversible work, and he said this. He said, take heart. That's a command. Take heart. Don't be depressed by what I just said. Don't be depressed by tribulation. Here's what you ought to do. Take heart, why? Because I have overcome the world. That word there for take heart, 
probably would be better translated as saying take courage. It means to have courage. The, the, the context for it is really like a battlefield. Have courage. And the reason we should have courage is not because we're fleshly and we should pump ourselves up. The reason we should have courage is because of what Jesus did. Jesus said, have courage because of this. I have overcome the world. So we need to get clear about what it means for him to overcome the world. The word overcome just means to, to persevere through something or to prevail over something. So it's used in the Greek world like in a wrestling context, context. When two people are wrestling and one person comes over another and pins them down and wins, that person has overcome. They have prevailed. They have won. This word was used in a legal context. And if your lawyer won the case, he prevailed. He overcame. He won. And this word, nikao, is the Greek word for you Greek types. It was often used in a military context to mean conquer, overcame, conquered, defeated the enemy. And so when I hear Jesus say, I have overcome, I hear two sides of the same coin. I think what he means is that he persevered in the world and was not pinned down by the world. He lived in this world for 33 years and he never sinned once, not in his thoughts, not in his affections, not in his words, not in his deeds. He never strayed in the least from the Father. He was not overcome by the world. He overcame the world. He pinned the world to the mat. And then the second related thing that I hear Jesus saying is that I conquered the world. And mainly he did that by conquering the ruler of the world. Back in chapter 12, Jesus had declared, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now I'm about to defeat Satan and it's gonna be over. Satan thinks he's about to get over on me, but the truth is just the opposite. I am about to get over on him. And so on the objective ground of what Jesus has done for us, therefore Jesus says have courage. He's not saying have courage in yourself. He's saying have courage because I've done something for you that you could never do for yourself. The courage he wants for us is not a fleshly courage, beloved. It is faith. Faith. Believe it. He has overcome the enemies of the church. He's overcome the enemies of every Christian person. Yes, we'll have tribulation at the hands of the world, but Jesus has already defeated our enemies. So be of good cheer. Be of good courage. Be courageous people in the world on the objective thing that Christ has done. Now, I don't know about you, but it strikes me that Jesus would make such a declaration as this before the cross. He has yet to suffer. He has yet to be struck with the cat of nine tails. He has yet to have the crown of thorns put on his head. He has yet to have his beard ripped out. He has yet to be insulted and punched in the mouth. He has yet to be jeered at by people who should have been bowing down to worship him. He has yet to be nailed to the cross and suffer beyond what we could imagine for several hours under the cover of darkness in the middle of the day. He had yet to endure so much, beloved, and yet he said with utter confidence, I have already overcome the world. It's like Jesus said, it is finished before it was actually finished. This is the level of confidence in his heart that he had in the Father's presence in his life, in the Holy Spirit's power in his life, and in the resolve of his own will. This is the confidence he had in the finished work of God. And so he could say, not arrogantly, but with calm confidence, I have overcome and the reason I point this out in part is to say that that's the kind of confidence he wants for his people to have. He wants us to be able to say that. 
I've suffered a handful of things in this world since I've been a believer. Who knows what I have yet to suffer in the rest of my life, but whatever the Lord has for me in the way of tribulation in my life, what I know is this, that I too have already overcome by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ. I didn't do this for myself. I believed in one who overcame for me. I clung to one who overcame for me. And so even though there's details to be worked out, it's already done. My destiny is set. All of the greatest things of life are settled for me in Jesus Christ. And one day I will see him face to face and be with him forever. And when he flashes his glory in the sky, it will seem like all that time of suffering was nothing. It will just seem like it was nothing. And we'll enter into the joy of the Lord forevermore and forevermore and forevermore. Beloved, this is our heritage, our inheritance in Jesus Christ. So take courage. Take heart. Be, be strong in the world. Don't be depressed. Don't be afraid of the world. Go into the world with the gospel of Jesus and love people until your death. Because Jesus has overcome for you. He did this for you. Now you might wonder, I wondered for a minute earlier this week, so why does his overcoming have that effect on me? I mean, he's the one who overcame. Why does his overcoming have this kind of a, a effect on me? And I think the answer is simply that he overcame for those who believe. He didn't overcome for himself. He's God. He already had infinite power over the world. Jesus did not need to overcome the world for himself. He came to lie, lay, his down, lie, lay down his life for the sheep. He came to overcome the world for me and for everybody who would believe in him. So when we believe in Jesus, his overcoming is our overcoming. His victory is our victory. It is a fact in our lives, beloved. It is a fact. Some of the brothers from the church were gathered at the Alexons' house last night talking about a number of things. And around the fire, we talked about this, that part of being a Christian is our feelings catching up with the fact. The fact of the matter is, in Jesus Christ, beloved, we have already overcome the world by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony because the word of our testimony is simple. We believe in Jesus. We look to Jesus. So this is why we should have courage. This is why we should have a, a kind of holy bravery in the world. It's not fleshly bravery. It's faith that Jesus means everything that he said that he meant. He said he would give us his peace. He said he would give us his courage on the basis of his revelation of the Father and of his objective work on the cross. Beloved, this is his promise to us. And I pray that we'll receive it as that. These are the final sacred words that he spoke in the upper room on that most sacred day. I have said these things to you that you may have peace in me. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So what should we do with these things today then? I just have three very quick things to, to say. First of all, since Jesus is now speaking plainly about the Father, so to us, he's speaking plainly through the words of God. He's not here physically with us in this place, but through the Bible, by the Holy Spirit, he is speaking plainly to us about the Father. Since that is true, we should delight ourselves in the words of Jesus the words of Jesus are meant to reveal God to us. And the revelation of God is meant to bring us into intimate communion with God. So beloved, what I'm saying is let him have his way in your life. Saturate your lives in his words. Being a people of the word of God is not a matter of doing Christian duty. It's a matter of embracing the love of the Father in us. Don't make this too complicated. Just open up your Bible and start reading and let the Lord speak to you. 
It's not complicated. Open and read and wait. Trust upon the Lord. Do you want his peace? Then delight in his words because his words are the vehicle for his peace. Second thing, since Jesus has opened up the way to the Father, then let us take advantage of that and call upon the Father in the name of Jesus. Today is the day of Pentecost. For the last 50 days, we have been seeking the Lord in special ways, some of us, through fasting and prayer. And these 50 days have been special for me, but it's just a beginning. It's not an end. It's a, it's a momentum builder for a way of life. Jesus has opened up the way to the Father. Let us show that we've understood by talking to the Father, by praying to Him about all things. And when you feel anxious, Paul told us what to do. In Philippians 4, he said, don't be anxious, just pray. Talk to your Father about everything that's on your heart. Don't be afraid to bring to Him the smallest little thing. And when you speak to your Father about what's on your heart, the peace of God in Jesus Christ will come over you, the peace that passes understanding, and your anxiety will go away. He told you what to do with anxiety. So, beloved, let's take advantage of that. Do you want the peace of God in Christ? Do you want that in your life? Then pray, beloved. Call upon the name of Jesus. As you believe in him, as you listen to his words, as you call upon his name, he promised us that his peace would overcome us. I remember years ago, I was going through some hard things, a big, big transition in Kim and I's life, and I was very anxious about it. For days and days, I had a knot in my stomach, and I just could not get the knot out of my stomach. One morning, about six in the morning, I just bolted out of bed, bolted up, feeling this knot in my stomach. I said, Jesus, this is not right. I'm a Christian man. Why am I this stressed out? This is not right. Something's wrong. And I just sat there in the silence. And I sensed the Lord whisper to me and say, if you will actually pray, I will actually give you my peace. And I realized in that moment I had been thinking about the situation and calling that prayer, but I was not praying. And so right there, I stopped my, what I, my plans were for the morning, and I prayed, and the peace of God washed over my soul. All the difficulties didn't go away, but the peace came. So, beloved, if you want his peace, call upon his name. Finally, since Jesus has overcome the world, then let us courageously do his will in the world. Let us not have fear in this world. Jesus is not saying, take courage and then go to your house and wait for me to come back. He's not saying that. He's saying, take courage and go out into the world and be bold with the gospel. Go out from this room today and love somebody. You don't have to save the whole world, just love somebody. Go out from this world, this room today, and speak to somebody about Jesus, and don't be afraid. And I'm telling you, when you take that step out and become a gospel people in the world, the courage of Jesus will come upon you. You'll feel it. You will know it. He promised it to you. He's going to give it to you. Your courage is not a function of the flesh. It's a function of faith. He said, have courage in the world. So go out there, beloved. Love somebody today. Share the gospel with somebody today. Don't be afraid. When somebody comes up to you and challenges you, how can you think that? How can you believe that? Aren't you just a bigot? Trust in your master at that moment. I promise you, he will rise up within you. You may still feel weak, but he will give you his courage. And you will speak for him. And he will bear fruit through your life to the glory of his name. So let's pray now that Jesus will powerfully apply these final words of his to our lives. Lord, we believe you when you say that through your words we will have your peace. We hear your command that we should take courage in you. And we agree with what you've said, Lord. 
We hear your declaration that you have overcome the world, and we celebrate that. And I pray now that you would help us, Lord. Our spirits are willing, but our flesh is so weak. We are so weak in so many ways, and we are so distractible in so many ways. But I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would come and help us. I pray that you would give us greater understanding. I pray that you would give us greater affection for you. And I pray that you would give us a greater resolve to follow in your ways. And I pray, Lord, that as we seek your face and as we have your courage in this world, that you would bear much fruit through us for the glory of the Father and for the joy of our souls and for the blessing of all the nations. Lord, let them hate us, but let us love them by bringing the gospel to them. Father, I thank you so much for the time you've given to us in this word, and I thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.